Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. This is the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Week by week, we have a different guest from across the whole range of the Catholic faith. We have converts and cradle Catholics. We have evangelists and apologists. We have pastors and teachers and preachers, people who are running their own apostolates, doing wonderful things for the Lord and building up the Catholic Church in many different ways. Today, my guest is a musician. Jeff Ostrowski lives in Texas, young man with a young family. He holds a bachelor's degree from music theory from University of Kansas, and he also did graduate work there in musicology. He is an expert in the performance of plain song and polyphony of the high renaissance. He's been a choir director, an organist, and he's also an editor of a hymn book, and he's our guest here on More Christianity today. Welcome to More Christianity, Jeffrey. Thank you, Father. It's good to be here. Jeff, you are also now the president of Corpus Christi Watershed. Can you talk to our listeners for a minute and tell them what Corpus Christi Watershed is and what your mission is? Sure. We're a small uh, public charity, 501c3, and uh, we are dedicated to the arts, especially in terms of uh, using the arts in the Catholic Church. But uh, over the years, we've had real success with uh, providing sacred music resources, Um, In other words, over the years, we've realized that there seems to be a great need for, you know, help in terms of church music and what goes on at churches on a weekly basis. So that has definitely become our focus. And, of course, we've done many things, including um, a couple years ago, I directed a full-length movie on sacred music, and it was played on three networks all over the world, actually. But, again, primarily what we're doing right now is focusing on church music because, as I've already said, there seems to be tremendous need for it. And do you have a tremendous interest in the actual work that you're doing? Do you have a lot of people who are coming to you for help and advice? Yes, Father, we do, and, and that's really what's been keeping us going over the years. The organization was founded in late 2006, and ever since we first started doing church music in, I guess, late 2007, early 2008, the response has just been unbelievable. Within the very first couple of years, we heard from everywhere in the world, Iceland, Russia, Africa, I mean, everywhere you can possibly think of, people, uh, they need help with church music. So in practical terms, Jeffrey, when you say they need help with church music, are these pastors who are calling you? Are they uh, catechists? Are they music directors, organists? Uh, uh, Who's coming to you for help? We've had lay people and priests, but I think it's probably fair to say that people that have contacted us mostly have been music directors. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what sort of help do you actually offer them? Well, uh, we have uh, everything from you know, 10,000 musical scores we've put online to thousands and thousands of training videos we've put online to articles. I mean, it would be a lot to describe all of it, but in general, we, we provide a lot of scores and practice videos and things of that nature. So it's an online resource. People can go to the website, Corpus Christi Watershed, and begin to search around and find the resources they need right there, or are you also publishing hard copies and getting them out in other ways? We are also publishing hard copies. It's fair to say that 60, 70% of our stuff is web-based, 
But again, yeah, we do have some really nice publications actually in, in uh, print. So you're actually providing music for churches. Is this new music, contemporary music, or are you publishing historical, traditional, classical music? Well, again, I hate to cubbyhole myself in here in terms of the 10,000 scores. I can't go through all of them, but I think we have some traditional, you know, Gregorian chant scores on the one hand and polyphony scores. But then on the other hand, we also have original music being written by modern composers. I would say between 10 and 20 of them share their works with us. And people appreciate those because, as you know, Father, there's kind of a, a great lacuna ever since the Second Vatican Council in terms of the Council's calling for modern composers to write music and publish music. This is one of the things I wanted to discuss with you, and that is the clash sometimes in the Catholic Church between contemporary music and classical or traditional music. Some of the people in my parish as a pastor, I think they, they have this idea, oh, Father doesn't like any of that contemporary music, you know. It all has to be music that was written before the 20th century, <laughs> you know. And mm-hmm. it's not the way I am at all, and I think you would agree with me that the question is not always whether it's old or new, but whether it's worthy or not. There are good songs that are written, good hymns, good church music that are written in every age, and there is inferior music in every age. Have I got that right, or is old better than new? You know, I couldn't agree with you more, Father. I think it's important to look at music and see whether it's good or not. Don't look at the dates of the composer. Have you ever heard of people who, <laughs> this is an old joke we used to tell, they go to a concert and they have to read reviews the next day to find out whether they like the concert? <laughs> In other words, don't look at the dates of when the person lived who composed it. Just right. The consideration is whether or not it's good music. I write a lot of music. My friends write a lot of music. We're relatively young, 20, 30, 40 years old. Again, we strive to write good music. And I don't like you when people say, oh, you're not interested in contemporary music. I mean, what do they think I do all day, you know? (laughs) Right. So there's great contemporary music out there. There's some inferior contemporary music out there. There's also inferior music from the past. But quite often, we don't come across the inferior music from the past quite so much because, quite rightly, it's disappeared, it's gone to ground, it's been forgotten because it was shoddy. Is that also part of the equation? Well, sure. And you have all kinds of considerations of whether that music was even written down, of course. So much of the music, you know, even in the classical era, was never written down. I mean, people were playing their own works, and they sometimes they would bother to write them down. I know Mozart's wife forced him to write down his fugues because she thought they were so good. But, you know, there's all kinds of considerations whether music reaches us or not. And what's amazing is, of course, Bach had tremendous output. J.S. Bach was one of the greatest composers of all time. But what's interesting is he actually wrote a whole bunch of music that we don't even have. We know what he was writing because he had a job as a church musician for three different churches. And so he had to be writing a cantata a week, if I remember my history courses correctly. (laughs) What we do have, of course, is tremendous, wonderful, amazing. But then it's amazing to think what we don't have. And some of those composers, I believe Philip Telemann, I think we have something like three or 4,000 of his works or something. So, yeah, I mean, the music, I think you're right, though, that generally comes down to us is the music that was worth saving. So, Jeffrey, let's get right to the heart of the matter. You agreed with me that the question is not, is the music old or new, but is it good music or not? And many people in our society will say, well, that's really, uh, you know, beauty's in the eyes of the beholder. You like that music? I like this music. You think that music is good? I think this music is good. You know, what are we going to do, flip a coin? So, without getting 
too deep into music theory and uh, musicology, which are your academic areas of, of expertise. For the layperson, for somebody like myself who, who knows a little bit about music and, and others of our listeners who perhaps don't know much at all, how do you begin to make a, a judgment like that about what music is good music and what music is not so good? Well, Father, I think the first thing is perhaps to ask the question, does the Church feel that any style is acceptable for Mass, for Church, for the public worship of Almighty God? Is that what the Church teaches? And when I read the Church documents and study the Church documents, as I always have and I continue to do, I don't see that. I don't see the Church saying that, that any musical style is as good as another style that we could use jazz if we like, polka if we like, rap if we like, rock if we like. I don't see the Church saying that. And that's why even when we have contemporary composers, such as the ones that Watershed promotes, the music still should be written in a sacred style as opposed to a secular style. But that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong or bad about music that's written in a secular style. That may be beautiful music that I love to listen to as well, but the question is, does it belong at church? So the first question is, this is music which is to be used in the liturgy. Therefore, it's going to have a different style. It's going to be written for a particular purpose. Obviously, anybody can begin to establish that criteria. The music which is written for disco is going to be different from a music that's written for a Broadway musical, which is going to be different from the music written for a country western singer. So, in other words, the first criteria you're giving us here is one of appropriateness. It's music that is written for, specifically, and in a particular kind of style, for the celebration of the sacred liturgy. Is, is that your first point? That's correct, Father, but you'd be amazed at how many people will not address that issue. And I don't mean just like lay people. I mean the so-called, quote-unquote, experts. Mm-hmm. Some of them, I think, over the years, I think it's fair to say, have, have ended up hurting the Church rather than helping the Church. But they won't really come out and say what they feel, because if we don't agree at the beginning, are all styles appropriate for Mass? I can't go any further than that until we figure that out, until we say yes or no. You seem to feel like it's obvious that polka music and jazz music and rock music and, and country music shouldn't be used at church. I have to tell you, unfortunately, there's a question in many uh, people's minds whether that's even an obvious question or not. So there are a good number of church musicians and people in the pews who might say something like, well, I just like that song. And whether it is appropriate for sacred liturgy or not doesn't really matter to them. Right, and I tend not to blame the people in the pews, by the way, for having that attitude. I really feel like there's been a lack of explanation over, especially over the last four decades, and so many changes have happened so fast. I tend not to blame the lay people for anything. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Because, and again, I'm not a person who's necessarily against the changes that have happened in the Church, because the Church has authority to make changes, or disciplinary changes, we know that. But you can ask the question, why were so many changes made in such a short amount of time? Because it becomes very confusing for the parishioners. I mean, just to, and I don't want to get off music because we're talking about music, but for instance, take the, the whole notion of the Friday, meatless Fridays, right? How many of our Catholics know about that or care about that? And that's just something that, again, the Church has made an adjustment to that. It's an example of, of confusion that has resulted 
And I tend not to blame the lay people for that. A very wise position to take, especially as they're not the experts, and the experts themselves are the ones who should know better. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. You're listening to More Christianity. This is the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Today we're discussing church music with Jeff Ostrowski, the president of Corpus Christi Watershed, an innovative website which provides resources for church musicians. Jeff, in the first part of the program, we were talking about music in church, saying old is not necessarily better than new, new is not necessarily better than old, but instead we're looking at the quality of music. The first criteria for uh, good church music uh, you, you said was that it's actually written in a sacred style which is appropriate for the celebration of the divine liturgy. Here's the next question then. What's an appropriate sacred style? Does that mean everything has to be Gregorian chant? I have to be careful when I answer because I, how many people are in the Catholic Church right now? A billion people, right? Something around that, something around that size. And so I don't want to feel like the answer that I give right now means everybody for exactly the same. But I can say looking at the Church documents... A lot of times what the popes have said is that the modern compositions should take as Gregorian chant as their inspiration. And so you, you kind of look at Gregorian chant and you say, what, what is it that makes this music so dignified and holy? And then you use that as your inspiration if you're writing modern music, for example. Mm-hmm. And so you try to uh, emulate the qualities of Gregorian chant. So no, I mean, the Church has never said that everything you sing in Church has to be Gregorian chant. Although obviously it, it has said that it should be given pride of place because it's been part of our tradition for something like 1,500 years. Mm-hmm. But that can be in English, that can be in Latin, that can be, as you already mentioned, you can mix it with modern styles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm going to give you another question then, Jeffrey, and uh, challenge you a little bit. Let's say we've got uh, music which is growing from Gregorian chant and sacred polyphony, like you've said, but you've already brought up the point that the Church is a billion strong in many, many different cultures, many different places around the world, uh, let me give you an example of the church music when I, I lead a mission trip to a village in El Salvador. We go to, the, to Mass there, and the church is packed with the villagers, and everybody's there, the young people, the old people, and the music group is up in the front, and uh, they've got microphones plugged into amplifiers. There's a lovely old guy playing the violin. There's another fellow with an accordion. Somebody else is playing a guitar, and they are leading the whole congregation in the most wonderful praise and worship to Almighty God. But the style is, well, it's village Hispanic. It's... (laughs) It's got a rumba beat, you know. It's it's mm-hmm. a really lively salsa kind of rhythm. Do we simply say, well, that's a village in El Salvador. That's their music, and they're using their music to praise God, and, and that's wonderful? Or does that need to be challenged in some way? You bring up some really good points, Father. And, of course, the Second Vatican Council in specific, uh, particular talked a little bit about what should be done in missionary countries and things of that nature, uh, continuing along the lines of things that had already been started in the Church years ago. For example, when the Jesuit missionaries came here, for instance, just as an example, 300 years ago they were given permission to uh, have Mass in the vernacular. Most people don't know that. Mm -hmm. So when the Second Vatican Council talked about missionary countries and enculturation and things of that nature, that was continuing something that the Church had always been concerned with. In answer to your question, I, I hope it's not considered a dodge, I can only say that it's important for church musicians to realize two things. Number one, they're not the Pope, and number two, their job is not to save the world. Their job is to wake up every morning and try to do the will of God. And if if they're in their parish, for example, 
and you have a you have to have a good priest that wants to work with you, of course, and you want to see whether you can do some work on the liturgy to make it more prayerful and more holy and more in line with the traditions of the church. First of all, it's, it's not an easy thing, by the way. As you know, music is hard enough. Vladimir Horwitz used to say, you know, music is, hard, is already hard. Don't make it more difficult. Music is already a hard thing. I had to study since I was a little boy just to be able to play music and sing music, much less write music. And then you add to that all the, all the kind of issues that you already brought up in terms of people, uh, what they're used to and this and that. And so it's never going to be an easy solution, but what you can do, you can pray, you can look at the church documents, and you can try to make a difference in your own parish. I'm not that amused these days when I read on the Internet or in the papers, and everyone's trying to go out and save the world for people that they'll never even meet or see until, of course, they, they die, and if they go to heaven, then they'll see them there. But that's an important thing for musicians, and the example we always take is, is a, a musician named Ted Marier who did wonderful things. Uh, I think he died in 2006 or something. There was turmoil in the church for 30, 40 years, but he didn't focus on that turmoil. He did amazing things in his own parish in, in Boston, I believe. I feel that that's what we're called to do. Don't worry about saving the world, because we know the church is in crisis and this and that, but to do something beautiful in your own parish for your own children. I'm going to jump in here and remind our listeners that you're listening to More Christianity, the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. I invite you to go to my website, DwightLongenecker.com. Browse my books, uh, be in touch, go and visit my blog, which is called Standing on My Head, where we discuss all sorts of different matters about the Church and contemporary culture, uh, and you'll learn more there about your faith. And uh, be in touch with me if you like to come and speak in your parish or to speak to your conference or your group. I'd love to hear from you if you're out there listening today. My guest is Jeff Ostrowski today. He's a professional musician and also the president of Corpus Christi Watershed, which is an innovative website providing resources for church musicians. Now, Jeff, I've got a question for you, which was the topic and the title of a book some years ago, which was kind of a controversial and edgy book at the time. It was called Why Catholics Can't Sing. And as a pastor sometimes, especially coming from a Protestant, then a Church of England background, we loved singing hymns, and uh, we sang them with great gusto, and <laughs> very often all of the verses, even if it was seven or eight of them. Why is it, do you think, that in so many parishes, Catholics, so many of them sit there with arms crossed, mouths firmly closed, and it's kind of like they're daring me, saying, go on, Father, try to get me to sing. <laughs> So mm-hmm. what, what is this resistance to him singing? I'm a convert, okay? Perhaps you can explain it to me. Let me, Father, directly address your question. But I, I do have to mention the fact that people don't know this, but before the Second Vatican Council, there were no rubrics given to the people. The people could do whatever they like. They could stand, sit, do whatever they like. And a lot of times, believe it or not, they were, they were doing something that had nothing to do with what the priest was doing or the Mass. Okay, and that's another subject, but that's important to realize that after the Second Vatican Council was the first time rubrics were ever given to the people. Now you stand, now you sit, now you sing, etc. Now why is that important? Well, because the notion was that it's not good to be what Pius XII called mute spectators at Mass. That that's not a good thing, that we should, that we should strive that the people would be more involved with Mass. You were mentioning singing at Mass, and that they shouldn't just be mute spectators. Okay. There's two things going on, though. Number one, there's a problem if, if you're trying to make people sing songs that are inappropriate or silly or goofy or with bad texts or any of that stuff, because then their natural instincts, which is, I don't want any part of this, is actually a good thing. 
But then number two, there's also a consideration. You know, the pendulum, in art, we always talk about the pendulum swings back and forth. Like I, I study the great pianists, and the pendulum always swings, right? This style's in, then it's out of style. This style's in, then it's out of style. And now I think the pendulum has almost swung too far to the other end, where people can't even go to Mass and just relax and pray. Sometimes there's always someone shoving uh, a new worship aid in their hands or having them sit or stand. And so that's not good either. So what I would suggest to you, Father, is a balance can be found where there's some time for meditation, there's some time for prayer, and there's some time when everyone stands up and sings a dignified piece of music. And that's the key. I feel that if, if, if you, you have all the, the positions in the pieces in place, which we've already kind of mentioned before, you need a good priest, you need someone who knows how to play music, etc., and you can need good music, those are, those are the three things, then you can start to build a tradition, and then you will, and I have seen people, uh, then you will see them start singing. So you think perhaps have some of the Masses on the weekend where there aren't any hymns, where people can simply come and enjoy a quiet Mass, a said Mass, or just singing the Mass parts, so that they can participate in a quieter and more contemplative way. Is that what you're suggesting? Well, I I wouldn't be against that, but that wasn't what I was trying to say. What I was trying to say was, for example, in, in in a Mass, the people don't need to sing every single thing, okay? The way that the Church designed the liturgy the deacon sings his part, the priest sings his part, the choir sings their part, the scola sings his part, and the congregation is supposed to sing their part. When you have a situation where the congregation is expected to sing everything, the responses, the hymns, the propers, the mass ordinary, and, and that, even if you have fully, fully dignified music for every single part of that, which of course, unfortunately, is, is not the case at the moment in most churches, that's not really what the church had in mind. And you can see that even in the monasteries, where they would always divide the singing, always divide the singing back and forth. And I never realized that until years ago. They do that because otherwise it's just too much. It's just too much singing. You have to save your voice. So they would sing the Gloria, Alternatum, and other, other things of, of that nature. So there's also an element, isn't there, of dialogue, of back and forth, and allowing there to be a kind of liturgical conversation that's going on within the music and within the, the structure of the Mass. One of the other things I notice when I visit some parishes, is that they may well have a paid organist and a, a large volunteer choir, but there seems to be a kind of passion in a lot of Ameri- American churches anyway for all of the music throughout every Mass to be kind of big, splashy, pretty exciting, and kind of triumphant. I've even been to funeral Masses where all the Mass at the funeral was kind of glorious, you know, like almost as big as the Hallelujah Chorus. It was this great triumphant song over and over. It was like one volume and one level all the way through the Mass. What can you instruct us about an actual sort of ebb and flow within the Mass? Because it seems to me that there are times for glory and times for praising God and in the heights of heaven with all the stops pulled out, but there are also times at the Mass when it's naturally reflective and, and devotional and much more reverent and quiet. If you agree with me, what what can you say about that uh, kind of dynamic or that flow w- within our worship? Well, Father, you ask good questions. The problem is that they would take a lifetime to answer, because <laughs> what you're talking about is the fact that if you study the liturgy, and, and again, unfortunately, um, so many people have not had an opportunity to do that, you start to understand these subtle ways throughout the year, even subtle tones and modalities that the Church uses at different times, to present the mysteries of salvation. And unfortunately, you know, we're so far from that where people haven't even heard any Gregorian chant, for example, or anything, 
to speak of them being able to instantly understand those subtleties would be absurd. I mean, it's just, it's just not going to happen. And so there's a lot of work to be done. But in theory, you would have more and more people becoming interested in liturgy and looking at it and, and these glories that even non-Catholics have talked about for so many years of the liturgy, you know, whether it's the Lamentations of Jeremiah on Good Friday or all these different things. It, it also speaks to theology. If you look at theology, right, because that's a whole other subject about this so-called avant-garde uh, contemporary music. Uh, and maybe I can t- share an anecdote about that if we have time later on. But the point is, with theology, the crucifixion, for example, a modern avant-garde artist might say, oh, the crucifixion is an ugly thing. Therefore, I'll write ugly music for it. You might think I'm kidding or using hyperbole. I'm telling you there are many composers who mm. think like that. And they say, my job as an artist since the crucifixion is, you know, that's what was done to criminals. Therefore, that's ugly. Therefore, I'll write ugly music, and then I'm doing my job. Mm-hmm. If you look at the history of, of Catholicism, and you listen to Morales or Palestrina or, or Lassus or any of these composers, and how they set, set the crucifixion, you don't see ugly music. You see beautiful, transcendent, glorious, beautiful, wonderful music. So then you start to say to yourself, well, wait a second, how can that be? You start to realize that so many of the mysteries of salvation, even if you go back to the Old Testament and look at how it's fulfilled in the New Testament, it's not easy to put a label on them, happy, sad, happy, sad. It's this mysterious, wonderful mixture, and that's really what, what Gregorian chant is so, is so amazing. It takes turns. It's not just in what we call major-minor tonality, right, compact tonality. It's hard to say, oh, that's a happy piece, or that's a sad piece. It has these beautiful elements all throughout. So, Jeff, you were telling me an, well, anecdote, just, an anecdote about an avant-garde artist. I should explain the word avant-garde for our listeners. Avant-garde, uh, to put it in, in colloquial terms, is to say it's kind of wacky and modern and, and uh, edgy. So what, what was this wacky, modern, edgy composer trying to do? You're familiar with these people. They'll, they'll go up on stage on a piano and they'll take a dead fish and they'll whack the piano with a dead fish, right? <laughs> and that's, that's like considered high art. And I'm not even kidding. That happens all the time. You know, or they'll go up on stage and they'll turn on six radios to static, and they'll call that a masterpiece. A couple of years back, a famous pianist named Vladimir Ashkenazi went there for the premiere, right, of, of, of these pieces. Um, and they all have premieres. They just never played again after that, but that's another story. So afterwards, Vladimir Ashkenazi, a, a really fantastic pianist, went back and congratulated the composer and said, what a wonderful piece that was premiered tonight. And the composer said to Vladimir Ashkenazi, what do you mean it's wonderful? And he said, well, it was great. It was your piece. And he goes, I know, but it was so ugly. And Vladimir Ashkenaz said, but it's your piece. What do you mean it was ugly? And he said, well, all I see around me is ugliness, so I just compose ugliness. And that is something that answers your question earlier about the church music. Church music is leading you to something higher and mysterious. And it's a a marvelous thing. So therefore, to sum up with Jeff Ostrowski, a modern Catholic composer, you're saying that music for the liturgy, music for our church, our Catholic church, the music that should be used got to have a sense of the sacred it's got to have the sense of taking us up beyond our ordinary world and lifting us up, and the music is therefore different than the music that we listen to driving along in the car or the music in the street. This music is going to be based in Gregorian chant, according to what the Church teaches, but it's not going to be slavish reproduction of the Gregorian chant. Our listeners, if you would like to know more, can go to Corpus Christi Watershed. That's the organization of which Jeff is president. They're doing a wonderful work to be able to provide resources and education for music directors and pastors and people in our church to lift up the quality of our music. You've been listening to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. My guest today, Jeff Ostrowski, president of Corpus Christi Watershed. Jeff, thanks for being with us. 
my pleasure, Father, and I hope I was able to say something that will help church musicians somewhere.